I want to begin this evening by saying what a privilege it is to um, be teaching and to be back. Obviously, I've been off for the past few weeks, and so it, it really is exciting to be to be back and to be studying at the feet of our black and white apostle of love, John here. And um, you know, I, I I confess, and I talked about this in my prayer group, but it, it's it's joyful to be back and taking a little bit of time off is. Um, you know, it gives you the hunger to be back at it and to be doing it again. And so I, I'm, I'm really, I'm really thankful to God and to you to have this opportunity to teach once again this week. Now, I'm very likely going to take, um, a, take a week, probably next week, to do a broad review of the Book of First John. Um, you know, we've, we've been here for a hot second now, and so I want to make sure that we, you know, in broad strokes, get, you know, kind of. An understanding of what the book is teaching overall, um, and not get lost in the weeds, so to speak. Um, but as I was thinking about that and preparing for that, I I realized once again that John is indeed summarizing for us here at the end of the book. This is exactly what he's doing. We have, um, and I'm not I'm not going to review all that we have um, been doing um, in in the past uh, few weeks, but I will review a little bit about um, our outline and where we had been and what we had been speaking about. Um, I had suggested to you that the title um, for this section would be uh, Certainties of the Christian Life. Uh, Certainties of the Christian Life. John, throughout this epistle, has been offering us tests by which we may become certain about our spiritual condition. And thus, at the end of this epistle, um, he is showing what conclusions we can logically and validly draw from our self-analysis. We have, we have, you know, in overabundant detail, have gone into all these different tests and to exactly what he's been saying. So, is as if to say that if we have passed the tests that John and the Holy Spirit have put forth to us. Um, then we may conc- we may confidently conclude the following things, and we've talked about what those things are. First, um, we discussed that we could conclude eternal life. And for those of you who have um, uh, forgotten where we are at, we are in First John chapter five, verse thirteen, and these are the things that we've pulled out so far. First, we can be sure um, that we have eternal life if we have passed these uh, tests that John has put before us. Um, as Christians, we can be certain that we have eternal life if we have passed the tests of the faith. Second was answered prayer. Well, we can be certain that when we pray, God will answer our prayers, except in the unusual and rare case of hardened, recalcitrant, intentional rejection of Christ. And we, we went over that you know, interpretively difficult section and um, discussed that at length. Tonight we're going, Lord willing, and me willing, um, to look at the final three, um, which are third, victory over sin, fourth, that we belong to God, and then fifth and finally, that Christ is indeed the true God, um, which is a, a classic way to finish this epistle in some ways with, with all of John's emphases. You really see that he's got to get one more word in there in his conclusion about what he wants you to take away from this study. So by way of introduction, let me remind you what a privilege it is to be a Christian. And as Christians, we deal largely in grounded, solid, and sure, absolute truths. But the world around us, on the other hand, in their wickedness, deals in unsure, shaky, and transient relativism. Christians are those who have come to know the truth 
about God, about themselves, and about their spiritual condition. We know, as John says, that all sin is lawlessness. But in, you know, in today's socioeconomic climate, um, this, this message could not be uh, more important because it's a truth that has been well forgotten. Um, I'm as certain as I can be that what is wrong for me is wrong for somebody else. Which is, uh, and I, I say that in the sense that it doesn't matter if you are um, a woman or a man, black or white, a Republican or Democrat, um, and in broad strokes it doesn't matter if you're part of a supposed privileged group or a part of an oppressed group of people, all sin is indeed sin. It is all lawlessness before God. Um, it doesn't matter what group, so to speak, you fall into. Humankind as a whole um, is in one boat, and that boat has fallen tragically short of the glory of God. Um, now, I said, as I said already tonight, we are going to discuss those three things, victory over sin, that we belong to God, and that Christ is indeed the true God. But I want to draw out for you, uh, before we get into that, that is critically important. Um, it's a theme that you will see in each of these. And if you fail to grasp this idea, I can guarantee that these following three points are not going to make much sense. Um, let's start off with Matthew 12:30, And then I'll, I'll draw out a, an idea that I think runs through all of these and is essential to understanding this passage. Matthew 12, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Any thoughts on what that, you know, I'm obviously picking that out of a larger swath of a text, but any thoughts on what that means when Jesus says that? There are, like from what you said, there's very clearly two groups of people. You know, like he kind of drew a line down the middle. It's like you're either on one side or the other. There's no, he kind of got rid of the whole gray area thing. He was like, there's just, any other thoughts on that? Right, and I, I, I didn't necessarily. I mean, it's one of the. It's a very straightforward verse, and it's a very straightforward idea. Um, but I want to remind you that we are human. As humans, are either on the side of Christ, gathering with Him, um, working for the sake of the kingdom and our Father, or you are actively in rebellion against the kingdom, scattering against Christ. If you do not grasp this truth, the verses in 1 John are not going to make a lot of sense. Um, if you believe that there is this neutral mass of humanity that's neither really for nor against God, um, these verses will not make sense as they are pre predicated on that there is only one true dichotomy within the human race. There is neither slave nor free, male nor female, etc. You can fill in your group. The only true dichotomy are those who are working for Christ or working against Christ. You can say that many different ways, regenerate, the unregenerate, the saved, the unsaved, whatever you want to say. There are only two legitimate groupings of people. Uh, and I will pause right here to bring a more culturally relevant note right now. Critical race theory, um, um, anyone want to start out by explaining a little bit about critical race theory? I, ha I have a quick note here, but yes. So the idea of critical theory in general is that every Every idea you encounter, every um, long-standing tradition, every sort of a, a rule, you should be critical of it. You should question it. You should tear it apart and, and uh, see what's at its root 
and potentially get rid of it. And so critical race theory kind of just extends that idea into the idea of, into the realm of racism and uh, how various races interact with one another. And they bring in uh, racial hierarchies into the mix as well and try to critique those. So it's just kind of a, uh, that's at least the idea. In practice, it ends up being, uh, this group is racist, this group isn't racist, and uh, it ends up getting used for a lot of political gain. You can disagree with me on that afterwards, please do. But. Jared, did you have your hand up? No, but I can, I can keep going. <laughs> no, no, you're, if you don't want to, that's fine, Nathan. I, I was going to express uh, a little bit more detail. The, the race, like the groups he's talking about are oppressed and non-oppressed yeah. groups. Um, so like the more oppressed groups you fit into, the more oppressed you are as a human. So the least oppressed groups is white straight males. Christian. Christian. <laughs> the most oppressed, I don't even know if they have the they, most oppressed. It's like whatever's most convenient in yes. a given moment. Yeah. Um, Trans females, black. Well, the, the problem with it so is like you can any, always be a more oppressed group. Yeah. So you what can it, always subdivide into smaller and smaller yeah. more oppressed groups until you get down to an individual which is ironically self-defeating for the purposes of critical race theory, but they haven't gotten that far yet. So. So, yeah. so the more oppressed you are, therefore, the more worthy your voice is to be heard. So l let me ask you this, and I'll, I'll state this in the form of a question then. Um, what difference um, in groupings do you see between the prevailing cultural ideal and the biblical worldview? Um, what, what two groups did Nathan articulate, and what do you think that scriptures articulating as the two legitimate groupings, quote-unquote, of humankind. Um, culturally, um, they define people as um, people that deserve things because of their heritage, because of what their present-day oppression or past oppression of their ancestors, um, and then people who are not those groups um, who, you know, uh, aren't <coughs> a part of the oppressed group um, they should be punished, um, whether that be physically jail time, um, just having less things, um, whatever that might be, um, punished for having ancestors that oppressed others and not being oppressed. Um, and then the Bible contrasts that by saying you're either you know, of the devil or you're of God. So I kind of want to say that. slaves, either slaves of the devil or slaves of Christ. Well, I, I kind of want to add to it a little bit because um, one of the things you see, I don't know if any of you guys have seen the videos, um, this June, this July, of like um, white people going out and washing black people's feet. Now, if you want to go out and wash somebody's feet, that's fine. I have a problem with you doing it because you think you're racist and that's the way to atone for it. But the, the prevailing idea in the culture is that if you're one of the oppressed oppressor groups, that you need to atone for your oppression by... Uh, bowing down to the oppressed group and offering um, penance for your grievances. So the irony is it's kind of like a, a perverted version of, of the way we view things, that we, we should be uh, repentant for our sins, but it's, it's, it's almost like a black Sabbath where they take um, what is biblical and twist it into something that's not. Sure. And, and so I, I, I don't bring that up to be unnecessarily um, inflammatory. Uh, the, the reason I do it, though, is because this is a fundamental point at which we differ from our culture. And I think this is a helpful point in which to draw out, um, you know, where our worldview and where our presuppositions differ from the culture around us. 
the large movement is that you have the oppressed um, and the oppressor and the oppressed. And uh, the biblical worldview rejects this, in my estimation, in favor of regenerate and unregenerate, um, those who are oppressed, all of humanity, that is, by the bondage of sin. Um, either you are a Christian, a God-fearer who loves the Lord, recognizes his lordship, and subsequently obeys, or you are an unregenerate, a God-hater, um, who denies the lordship of Christ and lives in rebellion against him. And I, I also want you to know that in these things, I, you know, I am intentionally denouncing critical race theory, um, the, but the idea underlines all sorts of movements, um, most popularly the BLM movement and such. But it, it's not so much the movement you know, and, and the people, it's the per, persuasive ideologies that are contrary to the word of God. Any ideology, that, uh, any thought that raises itself up against the knowledge of Christ is something that we should be um, you know, against. And so um, there, there won't be any reconciliation in anything apart from Christ. Um, and there will be no healing in our marriages, no reconciliation between races, no love between parents and children without the gospel of Christ. Uh, any other attempt um, is you know, based on a fundamentally flawed view of human nature. And so as we progress into this section in 1 John, you're going to note that he's just, we've talked about this time and time again, he's very black and white. On one hand, you have these people, and on this, you have uh, a completely antagonistic uh, group of people. And that is very helpful, and I think it fits very well within the biblical model. So we're going to start with number three, victory over sin. Um, in this verse, um, our very first verse for this evening, we return to one of the great themes noted in this epistle. We know, verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, or begotten of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now we've explained in the past that the idea here in the Greek is that uh, no one who is born of God makes a habitual life pattern of sinning. Yes, we all sin. No, this is not teaching perfectionism. But I, I'm going to spare you the references as we've gone there before. Um, but, we, you know, we're all sinners from birth, enslaved to sin, defiant, rebellious, haters of God. Um, we've stated with Paul that those who are not Christians are dead in their trespasses and sin. Um, but for a quick review out of 1 John to kind of bring us um, into this text, uh, we saw in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, that sin in the life of a Christian is incompatible with the law of God. Um, next, we saw that believers have a heartfelt love for the commands of God earlier in chapter 5. And um, we've seen in 1 John chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 5 that Christians cannot continue in unbroken patterns of sin. Um, we saw that sin is incompatible with the work of Christ. In chapter 3, it says that Christ who appeared in order to take away our sins. Um, we also saw in chapter 3 that sin is incompatible with the Holy Spirit because he is the seed which abides in us. So we've covered at length that habitual life sin is incompatible with the Christian life. Yet we have also noted um, that we are looking not for the perfection of one's life, but rather at the direction. Direction, not perfection, is what we're looking for here. So the question that we've been asking is, what is your general life pattern? Where are you going? Who are you serving um, as Lord of your life? Now, 
John gives a little bit more insight in. So we can say, but why is this? Why is it? We see right here, we know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. Cool, that's nothing exactly new. That's an awesome guarantee, though, even right there, just to pause and to say that, you know, though I fall down today and though I struggle with sin today, we know as a Christian certainty that we have victory over sin, that we will not continue in sin for our life. And though he's used this as a test before in some ways, now he's providing it to us as an assurance that we can be confident that as Christians, we will have final victory over sin. What an encouraging thought to know that I won't struggle forever with the things that I struggle with today, that Christ will progress me. Um, and, but why is this? And he goes right on to say, but he who was born of God protects him. Um, we have this pattern of, of holiness in life um, simply because Christ is holding us and keeping us. Now, many, many months ago, when we started this series, I introduced you to verses that said believers are to keep themselves in the faith. And I also told you that our ability to keep ourselves in the faith is rooted in God's persevering power. Uh, we, we exhausted verses at length at that time. And there's a lot of verses that we could go to for illustrating God's preserving power over the elect. But I have selected only two texts. Um, and the reason I did that is I, when I read these, I, I thought they were two that you could really sink your teeth into and that you could kind of just relish and they had a richness and a beautiful ring to them that was encouraging. Um, and so I selected these two. 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter 23 through 24, and um, I believe verse 27. Um, I think I made a typo, which means that that would have gone to Joe wrong. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, 24, 27. And then um, second. No, I'm stupid, because it's 2 Timothy 4.18. It's right. 1 Thessalonians 5.23-24, 2 Timothy 4.18. Okay, so you want me to just read 23 and 24? You have it right. I'm, uh, I'm wrong. Sorry. Um, all right. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Isn't that amazing? You have Christ preserving you, preserving your body, soul, and spirit until Christ comes, and then he's faithful to do it. What an amazing promise to grasp in our um, assurance of victory over sin. 2 Timothy 4.18 The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And you hear who's saying that? Paul. Paul is needing rescued from sin. I mean, wow. <laughs> if he's needing rescued, <laughs> certainly we are. Um, it's um, it, it's astounding to hear him say that, but encouraging at the same time to know that as Paul was needing rescued, so are we, and God is faithful to do that and to bring us through to the end. Um, as we learned very early on in First John, um, we have Jesus for our advocate with the Father, um, and we see that once again Jesus is the one keeping us and persevering us as a bride for himself someday. Now, that's the positive side, okay? This is, you know, John, we're on the white side right now. We're going to flip to the black side, going dark on us here. But we know that we who are born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. That's the flip side. What's the obvious inference in that statement? Uh, outside of God's sovereignty, 
or God giving permission to the devil, he can't do anything to us. That is not trying to get to. Not for no, but that is true. That is true. (laughs) I'm going to take a stab at what I think you're going for, which is that if you're not saved, then the devil can go after you and does. Yes. The obvious inference is <laughs> that if the one who is born of God is not, if, if you are born of God and you are not able to be touched by Satan, if you are not born of God, then you are touched by Satan. I'll take that a little bit further. Not just that you can be, but that you are touched by Satan. Um from a different perspective, obviously, we're not able to be touched by Satan, but the word touch here, you know, when you, when you think of touch, it's kind of like, you know, petting somebody, you know. There's a Joe Biden joke to be made there, and I'm not going to do it. I'm going to leave that alone. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to leave that right there. Um, but that, that's not exactly what the word touch is referring to in this context. Um, it means more than the casual stroke of a hand. Um, it means something more along the lines of to lay hold of, to fasten your grip on. You know, it's not just like, oh, I touched the Bible. It's like you know, you're, you're, you're grabbing it. Like you really, you got a grip on it. Um, and the, the point here being is that Satan no longer has an iron grip on you. He no longer controls you. He is no longer your master. Um, and once again, I return to the same theme that there is only one legitimate distinction within mankind. That is that those who are controlled, that there are those who are controlled by God and there are those who are controlled by Satan. Now, this is a very um, if you've studied Revelation at all, you notice that Satan has a thing for mimicking God's patterns. OK, he has his own unholy trinity. But as I thought about this, while we cherish the truth that we have God for our father, that we walk according to the Holy Spirit um, and that we are in the kingdom of light, I want to be very clear in saying that there are those, um, those who are not Christians, have Satan as their father, John 8, 44 through 45 and 47, that's the 47, uh, 8, 44, 45 and 47. You are... Uh, sorry. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Those who are not Christians have Satan as their father. We have God as our father. That's a very distinct difference. Um, And just as we walk according to the Holy Spirit, they walk according to a very unholy spirit. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, with a focus on verse 2, um, and then 2 Timothy 2, 26. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Was that, uh, which one was that? 2 Timothy 2.26. Yes, that's perfect. Notice the um, language about being captured by the devil there, that they are captured and enslaved. That's the idea. Um, Ephesians 2.23, uh, 2.23, um talks about how they're led um, by the spirit of wickedness. Let's go ahead and read that. Give me just a second. I'm sorry. Happens. All right. 
turn on your Bibles. I got, I got thrown <laughs> off. I got thrown off. I was like, if we're out of order. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Notice that phrase right there, by the way? All right, I'll let you go on. But and the sons of disobedience. But the spirit that works among the sons of disobedience. Just as we walk by the power of the Holy Spirit, they're walking according to the spirit of the air, which would be referring to a satanic influence in the world system. Continue. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But guess what? Verse 4 says, <laughs> I, I did read. It says, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Paul's drawing that line very hard, as you can see, too. It's a very strong distinction he's making. Um, And just as we walk in the kingdom of light, um, there are those in the domain of darkness, which would be all of unregenerate humanity. Uh, Colossians 1.13, Acts 26.18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Know that just as much as God has laid hold on you through Christ, Satan has laid hold on every other man to ever live. There is no um, in-between or freedom of the will. Sure, we may have some sense of choice in how we carry out our righteousness, and they may have a choice in how they carry out their favorite sin. But make no mistake, we are all enslaved to somebody. We are all enslaved to somebody. It's just a question of who your master is, who your Lord is. Um, and Paul provides an illustration of this dichotomy that I've presented with uh, presented to you. And, and he presents it in an analogy form because of the weakness of our flesh, he says. Um, but I, I want to uh, draw your attention to Romans chapter 6, 16 through 22, Paul presents a picture of enslavement of our will to one Lord or to another, um, and that dichotomy is carried through um, in this Pauline literature as well. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God... That though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms, because the weakness of because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented yourself your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you? What benefit were you when deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. 
That's interesting. When you were not a Christian, you know, you were free from one thing, and that was righteousness. <laughs> um, and now that you're saved, you're free from another thing, sin. And you're not enslaved to that any longer. Very good, then. Let's move on to our fourth point for this evening, um, or second point for this evening, fourth point overall, that we belong to God. I mean, this is exactly what we've been saying, but he kind of, I'd say, even gets a little more explicit with it. Um, we know that we are from God. Boom. Just as we have done in the prior moments, John makes this same transition. Sin and righteousness reveal something much deeper. They reveal who your owner is. Right? I mean, it's what, oh, every week, love it. <laughs> um, you know, he's been saying that, you know, talking about sin, and then we transitioned to talking about sin revealing who you're enslaved to, who you're owned by, so to speak. And this is exactly what John does. He moves from saying your conduct reveals, you know, who, you know, what you're doing in life to taking it a level deeper and saying that it reveals who owns you who your Lord is. We were purchased by Christ, who gave himself, as Mark says, as a ransom for many. Um, and you, you you, all know my tendency here um, is to go off citing verses about how we were bought for a price and stuff about penal substitutionary atonement and you know ransom theory and all that sort of stuff. But rather for a moment, can I just, I want to highlight um, how beautiful it is to belong to the light. Every human heart is longing for somewhere to belong. That's a very fundamental point that we run into day in and day out, is that we, along with everyone we run into, wants to fit in and to belong somewhere with some group of people. And, you know, as you go around in life, the the sad reality is that to fit in with most people, most people not being Christians, you... Um, your friends that are under the control of Satan, you have to act in a similar way in order to fit in with them. And so, unfortunately, we see that um, you know many are pulled away into very evil things just to fit in with a crowd of people who serve Satan, whether they know it or not. Um, but this is this is what's this is what's beautiful to me is that when we when we turn to God and when we um, become a Christian, where once we were required to do very unethical and very evil things in order to participate and to belong. When it comes to belonging to the kingdom of light, we are asked no longer to do unethical things, but to do righteous things, to do holy things, to do very wondrous things. And that is what makes us belong. Not that we belong to God because of doing those things, but when you fit in with Christians, real Christians, you should be doing wonderful things. Um, and that, that's so beautiful that God has called us to do those things. And my mind immediately went to um, the idea where Christ says that, you know, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he does. He does give us a yoke, and he does give us a burden, right? I mean, we do have, we do have something to do. But because of how wonderful and how beautiful uh, what he asks us to do is, it is true that his yoke is easy, and his burden is indeed light. Um, when we belong to God, we are never asked to compromise, but rather to live for truth and for righteousness. And now that we're in a relationship that is based on love and not hate, and I would say that is 
exactly what all of Satan's relationships are based off is hate. As Christians being based off of love, we have our soul finding an anchoring place where we settle into the love of God, knowing that nothing will ever sway his ownership and his love of us. Hebrews 6, 19. A beautiful, rather poetic statement of how our souls can rest in Christ um, in the Holy of Holies. Hebrews 6, 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Isn't that a nice way of, you know, putting that, you know, an anchor for the soul? Very easy to feel sometimes that you're adrift in life um, and um, kind of being tossed about. Um, but our soul has found an anchoring place in Christ and it is there that we rest and his um, high priestly work for us in context of Hebrews. Um, <clears throat> while we belong to God, we are, however, at war. And that is also a fundamental truth. We are at war with this kingdom of darkness that I have mentioned. Ephesians 6.12 points to this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But we don't war with guns and swords. Uh, that's not what follows after that statement, but rather the classic um, armor of the spirit. You know, you have the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, shoes ready to take the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, um, and of course prayer to finish out that list. You know, it's... We have this spiritual warfare where we're fighting against that kingdom of darkness. Um, but yes, it is true that Satan is in complete control over the domain of darkness. And it is true that we are arch enemies with that realm. It is also true, once again, that membership in, that, in, in those domains are mutually exclusive. Um, James's take on it is relatively strong, James 4.4. 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Someday, this will no longer be the case, right? There will no longer be competing entities in the universe. Um, one kingdom will win and one kingdom will be crushed. The satanic kingdom will once and finally um, be finished when Christ comes and puts down all rebellions. Another, I just pick in poetic verses all the time yesterday, but Revelation 11:15. Oh, oh, this is a sweet, sweet verse. You and I have very different definitions of sweet, because honestly, the book of Revelations is also a little bit depressing, but, but here we are, everybody. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. It's the Messiah. Yes. Handel. Handel's Messiah. That's exactly right. And that not that an encouraging thought? Notice he doesn't say kingdoms right there, by the way. It's not that the kingdoms of the world, not the political entities that rule today, not America and Europe and the EU, excuse me, and, you know, Brexit, let's go, and... Italy and China and all, you know, it's not about that. It's not the kingdoms of the world that become the kingdom of Christ. It is the kingdom of this world, 
which has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. It is to say that the satanic rulership of this world, the kingdom that is present today, will finally be broken. Today, here and now, that's not yet. That's unfortunate, but it's not yet. Um, Today, know that the religious, societal, economic, political structures um, are all inundated with the power of Satan. Um, I'm I'm going to use a Galatians passage um, as a springboard into our final section here. Paul warned the Galatian believers against slipping back into idolatry, which they obviously came from in their time. We're going to finish 1 John by talking about true worship and idolatry, okay? And I want you to catch the connection between these two sections. When someone engages in habitual idolatrous behavior, they are demonstrating that they are enslaved to Satan, okay? Which, you know, that kind of makes sense when you're bowing down to an idol. But it will make more sense when we get through the end of this last verse in 1 John, this connection between idolatry um, and enslavement, uh, or being touched, as John would put it, by Satan. Galatians 4, 8 through 9 puts this a very interesting way. You know, as we've talked about how God controls us and everything, Paul connects idolatry with the control of Satan very directly. And I think that's an important interpretive note going into our final verse. Galatians 4, 8 through 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Gods that aren't gods, and then Paul talks in other places about how those gods are really, uh, in 1 Corinthians he talks about how those are empowered by demons that they offer sacrifices to demons. He says, do you really you really, you really, want to go back to that? Really? You know, after all this time, after being freed, you want to go back to that? And then he says, and you, you can hear with him the pain in his voice in the next verse where he says that he fears he's labored in vain over these people. And and that is, that's a, you know, it's a touching statement by Paul. You know, it shows his heartfelt um, concern for these people. But, Um, For our final certainty, um, we end the book where we began, for that matter. Um, Point number five, point number three for tonight is that Christ is the true God. John was concerned that we knew that what he heard, what he touched, what he saw, what he held with his hands, 1 John chapter 1, remember all the way back there, he said, this is what I've beheld, what I've touched, what I've, you know, concerning the word of life, concerning Christ. He wanted us to know at the beginning that it was real. Now he finishes with a reminder that those truths are certain to us. Remember, that's where we are. After all he said, he wants us to know that what he started with is indeed certain. He has made his case and, excuse me, that it is a truth we can build our life off of. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come. That's where we started this whole thing. That Jesus has really come. Um, When it says that the Son of God has come, that verb come is in the present. Jesus has come and is still present. 
The Christian life and practice is rooted in the fundamental truth that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came physically to earth, lived and died to save us, and is still advocating for us um, on the right hand of the Father. Yes, is that a hand or is that no, you looking at your hand? My hand's hurting. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> you're fine. Um, no, you're fine. Um, I, you know, I think I, I think back to a quote I once heard. Uh, this isn't in my notes, but you know, Christ <clears throat> retains his manness still today, um, though he is glorified. He has not given up the fact that he has represented himself with us in humanity. And uh, somebody once said, and I, I do forget who it is, but the only thing man made in heaven are the scars that man has put into Christ's hands and feet, which is a pretty accurate picture of what humanity um, does to beautiful um, things um, like Christ and that we are unfortunately so fallen in that way. But anyways, I digress. Um, We also know from Luke chapter 10, verse 22, that it is up to the Son's prerogative um, to reveal the Father. Let me read a little bit more in 1 John right now, though. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, right? So Christ came and he revealed to us. He gave us understanding. Um, This is exactly um, what he did. He, He, Jesus, has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, God, God the Father. The word um, for understanding here contains the idea of moving across something. It's as if you've moved across an idea all the way, which is a weird way to um, put it. But the idea is that you have full breadth of understanding on the matter. Like you can sometimes you think about something kind of half-hearted and you like make a decision and you're like you look back and you're like I didn't really think about that. But the idea here is that Christ came and he moved our thoughts all the way around it. He gave us complete understanding of what was happening. So the idea is this, that Jesus came and he opened our mind to the wondrous realities of truth. Then from that, we experientially came to know him who is true. Yet we are not left with mere knowledge of him who is true, but we are instead blessed with personal union with him who is true, completely thanks to his son, Jesus Christ. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. Notice that we're in him now, um, having this personal relationship. And how has that happened? In his Son, Jesus Christ. So it is in thanks to Christ's work. But, you know, lest we forget the uh, theme of the book of first another great theme of the book of first john here what does it sound like so far it sounds like there's jesus who came and he's getting us you know connected with god that's you know that's kind of what it sounds like right here at this point in the verse but john reminds us that while jesus is the son of god he finishes with this statement that he is completely and fully god After he says, in his son, Jesus Christ, he follows that up with, he is the true God and the eternal life. As Paul said, the fullness of deity dwelt in Jesus. He was and is 
the true God who came, gave us understanding, entered into a relationship with us, and finally gave us completely a new quality of life, eternal life. Eternal life meaning that we are able to interact in our relationship with God, that we can respond to divine stimuli, and that we can spend an eternity with him as well. Without the deity of Christ... There is, of course, beloved, no salvation. There is no salvation. And now we end the chapter and the book and, you know, our time here. Um, you know, it, it's sad. You, you get attached to these books and it's almost like it's a friend. You read it so many times and it's like saying goodbye to a friend. Um, and so with this last verse, what a weird way to end, right? You know, I, I've read First John before and until I really studied it, I didn't, I was like, why? Why would you end like that? Um, notice, second and third John, if you want to take a look, he ends like a total dad. You know, He's like, I don't, I don't like this writing letters thing. I want to come see you in person and talk to you face to face. That's how he ends second and third John. But he doesn't here. Why? 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 Why doesn't he? Well, he's ending on his two, <laughs> he's ending on his two big points, right? That Jesus Christ is God and the eternal life. And finally, verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, it seems a little bit of an odd way to end, and culturally, of course, um, I will make a cultural note. Um, he was probably writing from Ephesus. Ephesus was a hotbed of idolatry. Um, this was where uh, the goddess Artemis was, also known as Diana. So a very pagan culture. Very easy to slip back into actual idolatry. Uh, I say actual loosely as in bowing down to something. I'll go even a little bit further um, on that cultural note. And I didn't go into this, but in Acts, uh, Paul went to Ephesus. Paul stirred up a little bit of trouble in Ephesus. As one does. One might say it, right? <laughs> one, yes. One might say it was. Enough? A, no. Peaceful, peaceful from <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my goodness. It was fiery but peaceful, okay? Yeah, no, but people weren't happy. It was a very idolatrous town. We'll leave it at that, okay, for cultural relevance. Uh, anyways. But in the immediate context, he has just finished saying that Jesus is the true God. Thus, if you worship literally anything else, you're committing idolatry. And once I read it like that, it made all the sense to me. If you believe false doctrine about Christ, I would also submit to you that you are committing idolatry as you are worshiping something other than the true God, right? If we have a false picture of God, then we are creating a God according to our own mind and our own conceptions. And thus, as we worship that deity that we have created, then we're, in some sense, committing idolatry. At every turn, then, look back over the book of First John. What are the things that we're instructed to look at? Well, <clears throat> we're told to have pretty solid doctrine, right? And that's, we have doctrinal tests all over the place. But how often are we implored to not sin in First John? I, w- I mean, if there's an emphasis in the book of First John, you have to be blinder than a bat to miss that one. I mean... It does not take a scholar to read that and say that John doesn't like sin. It really doesn't. Like, Actually, if you're a scholar, you might miss it. That's the truth of the matter. Um, 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 all the time. All the time we're important in 1 John. So I finish um, the book of tests with this plea to you 
that every time that we sin, fundamentally, we desire something more than Christ. Our heart yearns for it. Our will submits to the lordship of whatever that thing may be. Um, And I turn back to the three categories that we looked at earlier, in uh, that John put forward earlier. The lust (coughs) of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, or pride of possessions. Brothers and sisters, stay strong against lust in your hearts. Stay strong against pornography. Stay strong against the calls of money. And if you live your life in service to the things of this world, if you live for cool tech, a big house, a sweet gig, whatever your thing is, then you're going to be committing habitual idolatry. You know, as we sin, that is what we're doing, right? We're desiring something more than Christ, submitting to its lordship, bowing our knee to it, and in, unfortunately, some sense, worshiping it. And I talked about this with my prayer group. When you don't have contentment, when you're not living a content life, you're worshiping something. That's a pretty terrible reality, knowing how discontent I tend to be, right? I mean, but but this is, that's the question. Do I commit idolatry? Yes, every time I sin. But by God's grace, you know what? That isn't my habitual life pattern. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to try and list all the possible ways in which you personally could commit idolatry. There are far more than I could ever think of. And you all have your unique bents and your unique tendencies for sin. And I'm not going to attempt to get especially creative in my application. <clears throat> but allow, allow me to probe um, your heart with questions like this. And you just think on this. What, what, do you, what do you look forward to more than anything else? What do you fall asleep dreaming about every single night? What do you spend your money on? What hobby do you have that can tend to get out of control and can control you? It's not, you know, of course, we all sin, and by definition, I would say we all then commit idolatry. But what's the habitual pattern of your life? As Christians, we are always improving, always lessening our idolatry. may take two steps forward, one step back, five steps back at a time, but we're lessening our idolatry in life. And so I, I encourage you, um, you know, just with the whole weight of this book on us, that's it. Jesus Christ is Lord, and we have professed that as Christians to the glory of God the Father today in our life, not in the next, and live like it, right? Live like it. That's all there is to it. The Christian life is one of recognizing the lordship of Christ, and as Luther put it, the Christian life is continually one of repentance, continually turning from sin, and there is no substitute for that, for legitimate acknowledgement of the lordship of Christ in our lives, forsaking idolatry, and trying again, and getting better at it by God's grace every day. Now is there... Yes? I was just going to add, like, I've been reading or listening to Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis and the quote, and I put it in the guy's group, not, I was more um, paraphrasing it, but the actual quote in it, and it is very applicable to this, um, and really struck me. It reads, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joys offered us 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I thought that was so applicable to what you were saying because we're we're so e- easily satisfied in the sins yes. that surround us. We're so caught up in the emotions of day-to-day lives and the whatever we struggle with, it is so easily so easy to fall into that again and again and again. And we're like the small child that we can't get our mind off of this, the ridiculous, stupid thing. The shiny toy when infinite joy is offered to us on a daily basis and we spurn it and say, no thanks God, I'm good. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and, and when I ask those <laughs> questions about hobbies and stuff, I, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a hobby. There's nothing wrong with looking forward to stuff. There's nothing wrong with desiring things. And that is good. Yes. That is part of human existence. I'm not asking you to be ascetic. I'm yes. not asking you to, you know, intentionally be, you know, rude to yourself in that way. But I, I leave that to the, I leave that between you and God and with the Holy Spirit because in my life, I have a pretty good idea where that line is, and really I do know when I cross it. You know, I know when I'm desiring something to an unhealthy point. Um, and that is something that the Spirit reveals to me, and I trust that He will, <laughs> as we've gone through, you know, you're a Christian. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the seed of God inside of you. I trust that He will apply these texts, and I'm not going to browbeat you with them. I'm trusting that he will reveal and convict the areas in which that you know you go too far and you idolize things in your own life. Um, I um, I want to finish here by combining uh, two quotes by Calvin from his section on um, idolatry and institutes. One of which you are very familiar with, of course. Man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols, and the mind begets an idol, and the hand gives it birth. The mind begets an idol, and the hand gives it birth. A very insightful quote. I love you guys very much, and thank you for ha- hanging on with us to the end of First John. Um, I know it's been a long time coming. So here's my final encouragement to you from this section, that no matter where this group goes, where you go, where I go, and we've had a really good run. We've had a really good run with this section, and I'm I am really thankful um, for for our ability to move through this. And I I, I want to commend you guys. I think as a group we've matured. Um, you know, when we started this series, we would not have been able to handle expositional teaching. Um, and I'm I'm proud of you guys for maturing as people. I I have sensed that you guys were ready. Um, to move to that level, and so I've I've switched to that because I, that is my preferred way. So I'm thankful for you guys um, and your growth there. But no matter where we go as people and as a group, um, love God more than anything, and in so doing, submit to the Lordship of Christ. Godliness with contentment, with love and cherishing of that godliness is great gain. Never, never yield yourself to be servant under the lordship of sin, which is idolatry, which is lawlessness. May the God who drew you to himself keep you pure until the appearing of his blessed and beloved Christ. Nate, you want to pray for us? Yeah.
Dear Heavenly Father, um, we just thank you so much for this evening, for uh, your word that was presented to us, for your um, for the willingness of Sam to bring forth the burden of his heart. Um, we want to thank you for this series, what a blessing it has been to us, what a, um, what a wonderful thing it is to be able to you know, understand the test of the faith, what it means to look at your word and, and see does my life line up with that and it's a it's a blessing and uh, and a joy to be able to do that um, and we just ask that you'd be with us this week um, each and every one of us as we go about our days as we're all you know <clears throat> a lot of us are trying to finish up school um, this week that you would give us understanding give us the perseverance to make it through this week um, and that we would wholeheartedly trust in you and that we would wholeheartedly love you this week um, <laughs> like you deserve to be loved and that yes. you deserve to be cherished um, <clears throat> and that we would totally be satisfied in you because yes. um, that's where we're going to find our contentment that's where we're going to find our peace and our joy and our and all the other wonderful things that that we think we will find elsewhere at times. Um, keep us safe. Keep us uh, in your in the center of your will this week. And uh, assist in your son's name. Amen. Amen. My document so far for this um, for this series, and I think I think we probably still do have. We're going to go somewhere else, but. Um, um, I believe right now I'm sitting at about 94,000 words in my document for this series. Uh, 0 .02, 0 0.2 margins for 142 pages so far. So, I think, yeah. <laughs> so, it's pretty cool. I don't know if you have to write a doctoral thesis for what you're doing, but if you slack on it when you get there, I'm going to find you. Uh -huh. Eat you. <laughs> yes, I... I really you're capable and you just got my current doctorate is uh, a non-dissertational doctorate for which I am thankful. <laughs>